Hi, I'm Lisa Kennedy and you're listening to The Bra and the Brave. This podcast celebrates the creative and the courageous. I am fascinated by those who are talented, forward-thinking and inquisitive. Sharing their stories, wisdom and everything in between, The Bra and the Brave is about people and their passions. So on to today's episode. Can you see okay. the recording? Is there a wee countdown thing on your screen? It is. Amazing. I love how it's called you careful scientist. Have you noticed that? Careful scientist. That's like the opposite of what I am in every aspect of my life. Not careful, not a scientist. <laughs> I would I would beg to differ, Mary. I'm a good Actually, I'm am quite careful. Yeah. Exactly. See? Yeah. <laughs> but I'm not a scientist. But MD is like obviously not aware of what we're talking about. So on the <laughs> on the system that we use in Squadcast, which is wonderful by the way, not you know this is not an ad, but um, it, I, I discovered quite early on that it names people if they don't name themselves. And but I thought I thought the guest was actually calling themselves that, and I was like, oh, <laughs> Marianne, when did you develop your interest in science and being careful? In fact, I think I'm going to make that my new like Insta handle. Is that what they're called? <laughs> Handles. It's like a rap, rap name. It's like okay. Professor Green, but careful scientist. <laughs> so really, we should be doing a podcast about your new career. Yeah. <laughs> well, right, well, see, here was you. So before we hit record, here was you saying to me, oh, I've no getting to say this is going to be wholly boring. But here we are. <laughs> Minutes Talking in. about careful science, I know. <laughs> Everybody's riveted already. They're like, whoa, two minutes in, man. She's so exciting. Oh, you're absolutely exciting. And I'm <laughs> delighted that you're on the podcast. This is the thing about being friends with me, you end up on the podcast. That's fine, Lisa. I'm just, just worried that you'll be really disappointed. No, I won't. Well, this is the thing like about knowing somebody. So you and I didn't grow up together. We our friendship formed as adults. So I'm dead interested to like know everything about you and like where your love because you're a incredibly talented person but I want to know where your passion and your love came from uh, for theatre music dance and that's just not a conversation I, I think that we've had because it's just like Marianne's into musicals Marianne sings Marianne acts like she dances we're going to get into it you're a very you're, you're a multifaceted very talented wonderful human Marianne McGrathen thank you very much Lisa Kennedy I think of you as almost like a like Miss Musicals like you're such an expert on musicals especially I mean I know obviously your your love and your passion extends beyond musicals but you know if there's a new musical to be known about bet your bottom dollar Marianne's going to know all about it and who's in it and who wrote it and, and that's what I love I love the knowledge and that like the, the kind of thirst for knowledge in terms of the, your, your art form so where does this passion come from is it from childhood yeah I think so so um when I was younger I didn't like cartoons but I loved, um, do you know, the RKO, um, Music Hall, Ginger Rogers, Fred Astaire, black and white musicals. So my mum and my brothers like thought I was a big weirdo because, you know, they wanted to watch cartoons and they would be me getting up. Like they showed them every morning during the school holidays on BBC Two. There would be like Radio City, RKO, um, Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers musical. And there was me in front of the telly. Like I set my alarm to get up for like eight o'clock during the holidays and I loved Technicolor musicals so and those were the first things I was exposed to like musicals on TV so you're Gene, like Gene Kelly to this day but it's all Technicolor there's even something about Technicolor film because just now I'm on a Zoom film club every Sunday with a bunch of friends and we've been meeting up 
basically ever since lockdown started second week of lockdown like we have a zoom call and there's six of us and we started doing like a movie quiz like a movie like three top 300 movies and we're going to watch them all and the ones that I still love are ones that are done in technical and they're not necessarily old but it's just like a technique and I'm not mm. big film buff I don't understand it all but there's something about a technical and musical that just makes it look like life is better. And it's not like I didn't have a hugely tragic childhood, um, but I lived in a pretty rough area. and You know, life wasn't like that. And my brothers were like, musicals are stupid. Nobody walks along the street and just busts into song. But I was like, well, you love the Terminator and nobody comes down from outer space and starts like a robot, starts killing folks. So it's kind of the same. But my mum would tell you that I was quite, shy as a child in terms of performing and my dad was a fireman so we used to have the fire brigade Christmas parties and she said when I was like three or four they wanted someone to come up on the stage and sing and I was like me and my mum was like no I don't think you understand like you're gonna have to stand on the stage and sing because most of the time I, I didn't speak to strangers like I didn't talk to my parents friends like really shy and she said I just got up on the stage and started singing and they couldn't get me off and then I started dancing when I was like three because um, Watership Down was quite big and I would literally stand in the living room and see the song Bright Eyes and just like twirl constantly to Bright Eyes. Oh, so my mum like- was like, <laughs> like putting, in, putting in a dance class. So I started doing like Baby Ballet when I was three and it was dance that I did. I didn't, I have no recollection of singing on the stage and the, the Christmas party and I didn't sing until I was 18 because mainly because my mum told me I was tone deaf. But I thought I was really good and I used to tape myself. So I used to get tape recorders and I would tape myself singing memory and all that. And then I gave the tape to one of my friends for another reason. I think there was something else on it. And when they kept playing it back, there was me and they were like, is that you? And I was like, yeah. I always got mixed messages about my singing. Like I remember singing in primary school and the woman who was like the auxiliary turned around and said, well, I thought that was an adult singing there. You sound like an old lady. And I was just like, I don't know if that's a compliment. <laughs> but I knew I enjoyed it. So basically because my mum was like, you're tone deaf, I thought, well, singing brings me joy. It makes my heart sing. So I'm going to make sure I'm good at it. And I remember when I was confirmed, you know, like Catholics get their confirmation in primary seven. Um, and I controversially picked a boy's name at the time. I said, I want, I want to pick a boy's name. Why should I pick a girl's name? Like, just because I'm a girl. And the school was like, we have to have a meeting. So they had, like, a parent council meeting. My mum and dad had to go, who were not active members of the parent council. And uh, the topic was brought up. Whether, and so I had to stand up in front of all these parents and say, well, I don't think that only girls should pick girls' names. And basically, in my mind, I wanted to pick Michael because he was the archangel. And I thought he was, like, much better than the rest. Um so they were like, yeah, that's fine. And then when they said it was fine, I turned around to my dad and I knew a nun called Sister Peter Patrick because my, my gran hung about with nuns and that. So I then turned around to my dad and I was like, actually, can I have two names? And he was like, you're pushing your luck. <laughs> that's exactly what I said. He was like, you're pushing your luck. So in my confirmation, when you get confirmed, you're supposed to like ask God for it. That's when you get your special gifts from God. Much like, do you know, like Spider-Man when he gets bitten by a spider and he becomes a superhero and all that. Like, So, yeah, get your special gifts. And I was pure praying that my special gift would be to be a good singer. Like, I swear. Yeah. So, Aww. when I was 18, 
my cousin actually was killed in a car accident when I was 18, like, and I was at uni at the time, and my cousin was a year above me, and I just, at that point, was like, see, if I died tomorrow, what could people say? I'm not loving, like, I wasn't, I hated uni, I, I felt so anonymous, I'd been, like, school captain, class rep at school, and, like, really popular, like, I peaked in high school, I'm one of those people. And so when my cousin died, it was a wee bit of a wake-up call and I was like, well, if I was to die, what would they say? Like, was I living my dream? Was I doing what I wanted to do? No. So at that point, I decided I wanted singing lessons and I wanted piano lessons and that's where it sort of started. And I was still dancing. And at that point, I think I had qualified as a dance teacher as well, So or shortly after that. But yeah, I was just like... Uh, you know you've got one life you might as well make what you want to do and yeah I think for me musicals I went to see my first musical it was Joseph and his Technicolor Dreamcoat at the Gaty Theatre Gaty Theatre in air I remember just going this is like everyone just seems so happy and I remember watching do you remember Ted Rogers 321 and it had it was a game show it was Dusty Bin yes and they had dancers on it dancing I remember saying to my dad how do they know how to move all at the same time and I remember watching Toppy Pops and saying to my dad, how do they remember all the words to their songs? So I always was really curious as to how like, people did it. So I, that's where it, I think that's where the love of it started. But I mainly started studying it because I thought I wasn't very good at it and I wanted to be better. And so I actually started singing opera. Um, I wasn't allowed to sing musical theatre because I didn't have a musical theatre voice whatever that means now. So was this like when you were getting the lessons, you were kind of like encouraged to sing opera? Yeah, when I was 18. But um, there was a lovely woman up in Presswick, but she kept saying, like, seeing the big notes, I just wanted to let go and, like, blast it out. And she was like, you can't do that because opera singers don't really train till they're, like, 30. And she was like, you'll ruin your voice. And I was like, but it's not hard. It's not sore. Like, my voice wants to do it. And she was like, no, you need to, like, rein that right in. But I always found the breathing very difficult because it's it's all legato, it's all long lines. And then I got another singing teacher like a few years later. I like I stopped singing for a while. I'd been singing at church, so I sang at church and I went to Spain, I sang at my cousin's ordination and things like that. And that's basically what I did. And again, people were like, Oh, I thought you were much older when I heard you sing. And I was like, Oh, sound like an old lady. <laughs> like, what is <laughs> I think I just sounded like Cher singing in a bucket. Do you know that way? Like in a well. And I now know because of like I study the still vocal technique and like I teach that that it comes from having a low larynx and and I'm a, an imitator or a parrot if you know what I mean. So if you sing me something, I'll mimic it. And so I clearly was just mimicking what I was hearing, share singing in a well. Um, so as you do, yeah. Um, and so when I went to RCS. Like, they were saying, you don't have a musical theatre voice. And I was like, yeah, we've established this. Why did you let me in? And I was like, well, what is it? And they're like, don't really know. And they're just like, well, for one thing, you're no bestunting a chorus because you don't sound like anybody else. Um, but they were saying, you you tune into what you grew up listening to. So I grew up listening to, like, Julie Andrews um, and, and that kind of thing, Sarah Brightman, like, those kind of musical theatre singers. Whereas young people now they'll be listening to people that sing in Legally Blonde or Mean Girls or Heathers and it's a much more modern, like, twangy sound. Um, and it took me a long time to get that sound because it was the opposite of what my natural setup is. I mean, obviously, you've got your natural ability, your natural sound, like you're saying, there is a technique to it. There's so much technique to it. And that, that's something you can, it's malleable, you can play with and you can work on. But I guess 
you're working with the anatomy that's there. Yeah, because someone kind of recently said to me, you can only sound like yourself. The reason that I started doing like the still vocal training was because like they kept saying to me, you've got like a really flexible instrument, but you only sing one way. So it teaches you how to use it. So, you know, you manipulate your larynx and you you know, use your airy epiglottic sphincter and all the rest of it. And it's all very wow. technical. And it, But it is good because when I started singing, it was all like, imagine their voice is like a moonbeam coming out the top of your head or you've got a unicorn horn and that's the way your voice is going. You're like, well, there's no, no part of my vocal anatomy that sits in my forehead you know, so it was all metaphorical language and a lot of people still teach like that now. A lot of musical directors still talk in those terms. Um, and, you know, it's it's good in some ways, but for me to make a sound shoot out of my head like a rainbow, I might do something very different from what you might do because you interpret that differently from me. Whereas if you look at the anatomy and you talk about, you know, are you going to lower your larynx? Are you putting it in the mid position? Are you putting it in the high position? Are you going to put vocal cry on that? Are you going to tilt that larynx? Are you going to narrow your epiglottic sphincter? Well, there's only one way to do all those things. And so for different sounds, like you would separate those tiny things and put them together in a sort of recipe, if you like, yeah. and make that sound. So, yeah, while I naturally used to sing like Julie Andrews, say, I now can belt and do big numbers and, and all the rest of it just because I've learned to manipulate my larynx. I'm still not going to sound exactly like someone else because it's to do with the size of your larynx. It's to do with your own kind of muscular structure, the bones in your face, the sound that comes out is individual to you, really. And that really impresses me that you spend the time like honing your craft. I think when you're like... I know everything you don't and I think you're only going to suffer as a performer like and there's aspects of musicals that I so I didn't used to think my acting was that good but it turns out my dancing is the worst of the three whereas when I first went to RCS I was like my dancing's my strongest then I was like no the rest are better than that and my dancing is the worst so all the people from like Canada who were like amazing dancers and I was like hum you're a dancer but it's funny like your own perception of yourself you were underestimating your strengths. Uh, yeah, but also I think I had my eyes opened as to like, you know, let's call a spade a spade. I don't have six foot long legs, you know. I'm like a barking basement Beyonce or a poor man's J-Lo, do you know that way? Like, you know, I don't have the build. You know, so I'm not going to compete in the West End with these people who went to Arts Ed as dancers. And that's fine. And I sort of realised that when I got there. And I would now class myself as a good mover. Sometimes people who do arm jam will say to me, oh, but you are, you, you're a great dancer. And I'm like, um, I get by okay in the arm jam world, but like professionally, no. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And I'm also getting to an age where I don't want to like hoof myself about a stage. So obviously you have alluded to the fact that you went to RCS, but that was later in your, your career. Yeah. So you went to Strathclyde and, and what were you studying? So I did English and psychology there. Um, and then, so I graduated with an honours degree, and just, yeah, just after I finished, I got really ill, and I think it was working on me during my, my honours year, I was just knackered, my hair was falling out, and my nails stopped growing, and anyone that knows me, my hair grows like a beast, and so did my nails, and it just, I think my body was shutting down, and it turned out I had some viral infection, like, they were talking about superbugs at the time, and 
um, I was working at McDonald's um, and I had I ended up with ME um, for quite a few years and I, I think I was off McDonald's for a while and I didn't go to dance for a while and then the first thing I went back to was actually dance and I would do like five minutes and then sit down for like 25 minutes because I just but it was important mentally I think to keep going eventually I went back to working in McDonald's and I would sit down in the drive-thru because I couldn't stand up for any length of time but I think it was important to push myself and then when that was kind of over I decided to go to teacher training college and I think it was just options had been taken away from me I think um so physically I wasn't in any shape when I started feeling better you know that's when I like I went back to my singing um and I, I kept up the dancing and I had my own dance school for a while so I taught and then a girl I say girl she was probably in her 30s at the time in my dance class had got married and she'd moved away and she'd had her own dance school in Symington. So I took that over, but it got to the point where they were like, let's put on a show. And I was like, I think if I start doing the show and doing the costumes and all this, then I'm I'm in this and, and that's it. And at the time, I just felt if that was all I was going to do was run a dance school, it just I, I wanted to, like it didn't challenge me education wise like as you're saying I like to keep learning and I'd been teaching dance for a long time I'd been teaching since I was 16 for my dance teacher so I just left the dance school for a while and I closed that but I still taught for like my dance teacher like I know you're saying like other options had been taken away from mm. you and obviously you know, what you studied at Strathclyde there was like not necessarily a, a plan but like there was obviously an interest in those subjects to now go well you're now a drama teacher I didn't do drama at school. They didn't have it. Mm. Well, no, they did later on when I was in fifth year. Like, Cowinan's not a dramatic place. <laughs> There's a statement. It's not. It's not a dramatic place. Um, acting terrified me. Like, when I danced, it wasn't like me on stage. And then when I sang, it wasn't really me, particularly when I was singing opera. Acting, I just felt like that was more you. So I, I didn't really do it. We didn't have any acting or drama groups when I was in Cowinan because it's not a dramatic place. And then um, at school, there was no drama. But when I was in fifth year, they started a drama class, but it was basically for, it wasn't a hire. It was like, like a Scott Vick module or something. And I was like, I was I had hires coming out my ears and I was like, I don't really have time for that. And all the nades took it because they just thought it'd be a laugh. And even when I was going for my teacher training interview, at uni as part of my English degree, I'd done a couple of modules that were like directing modules or looking at plays, but but it's literature. Um, and even like when we're reading stuff, I was like, oh. And there was there was a course and it was like a performance course you could take as a module. And I didn't take it. And basically they were like, it's dead easy to do. All you have to do is stand up and do whatever your talent is or whatever you're going to mm-hmm. do, perform it, and you pass. And I could have done like an opera song, but I was just like, nah. And because I wasn't very confident at uni, like I felt I was quite young when I went and everyone else, I think when you do like English, you get a lot of adult students in like people returning. Um, and I was 18. And even the, the, the people who were from the English education system were older than me. I remember sitting in a tutorial once and there was like a poem or something. And the guy was like, so what's this about? And I went, football. They never told you you're wrong or to shut up. But they were just like, he was like, anyone else and I just was like oh no crushed. so I just I wasn't the most confident at uni like you know I would get the train up from Ayrshire every day and I just didn't really feel part of it and I just thought everyone was like 
cleverer and older and more experienced than me. And so I didn't put myself out there. Um, mm-hmm. So I didn't even take that performing class that I could have just passed by singing a song. Um, but I took enough modules in English to do this course in my honours year called Theatre Studies. And it was at Jordan Hill. And it was the best class that I'd ever taken. Um, and it was great. Like, And it was a directing point of view. And when I had to act, I was like, oh, no. Please. It's just so like, funny, like knowing uh, what you've done and what you've achieved. I know, now. I do. Oh, I was just like, this is so. I don't know what I'm doing. And they always used to cast me as Mary Queen of Scots all the time, cause of the ginge, cause of the ginge. And so they would give me like stuff to read, and I was like, oh, I can't do this. Um, and I was like, just reading it. And there was one that was like void check, and it was about peas or something. I was like, peas. These are peas. Why are they? And I was just like. Uh, cringe like the cringe glands in my neck were fully flailing about I like hated it and so you know did my did my my duty I was still teaching dance I was still going for singing lessons qualified as a teacher and then one of my um, probationer teachers did a bit of arm dram and she was like just come along so it was my fair lady and at the time um, I went through quite a facial a major facial operation <laughs> it's just like everything stands in my way so, and that's like, I was going to say, when I started teaching drama, I was so scared of acting. Like, I used to just sit with the crucible and go, so, I mean, let's just look at this bit. And like, it says this there, and I wouldn't demonstrate acting. So I went to night classes at RCS. I went to an Alphabet concert with my friend, and I met my friend Mark, who I hadn't seen for years since we worked at McDonald's together. And he was always into drama. And he was like, I'm going to go to this class. And I was like, do you know, I need to do something like... So academically, I knew all the stuff about drama, but I was so scared to act in front of anyone. And then um, I couldn't go the first night. And I was like, Tim, what was it like? And I managed to get the school to pay for it as a CPD, which I thought was a stroke of genius. <laughs> um, and then he was like, you would have hated it. And I was like, does everybody like hug each other? Um, and he's like, we all had to stand in a circle and massage each other shoulders. And I was like, no, I'm not. I'm not down for touching strangers. Like, no. So I went along. And it was all right, like, because my friend Mark was there and stuff, and it was a lot of improv, and I had to learn, like, a wee bit of a script. And then I started doing it the next year, like, kind of moved up a level. Then I had an operation on my face. I have facial scoliosis. And basically, they don't know whether it was, like, a syndrome I had from being born or I fell on my face when I was eight, and eight is prime face growing age. So half of my face didn't grow, but the other half did. So it like pushed my chin round to the side. So I had to wear braces for like a year till they moved my teeth into the place they should go. Mm-hmm. And then they did the operation and they basically like broke both my jaws and put a piece of my hip into my face That's and four, four metal plates. So now it's not amazing, but it's much better than it was. And I think up to that point I'd always been really self-conscious about the way I looked and most people didn't see it but it was very obvious in photographs I think because the image is reversed or something but I had just this thing like I knew like I was really embarrassed about my face and when I laughed I would cover my mouth and all that kind of thing so you know I didn't want to do like you know musical theatre and be on a stage so I got this operation fixed and I remember coming home from the operation and Britain's Got Talent was on and it was the final it was Susan Boyle which is really funny because like Susan's vocal coach was on the podcast this week yeah I 
listen to that one. But also, I met Susan Boyle because, like, the guy that ran the course at RCS used to be Susan's sort of vocal coach. When we did The Fringe, we did Avenue Q, and there's a picture of us all on stage with Susan Boyle because she she came to see it. Um, and she, ah, she was lovely. It's kind of like a full circle moment because I remember watching Susan Boyle singing I Dreamed a Dream and I was like, right, now my face is sorted. I don't need to hide from the world anymore. Like, I'm going to do this. Yeah. And that's when I sort of made the decision. And I did like a, a couple of weekend courses at RCS and I, I sold my flat and I moved up. I'd auditioned for some like drama, like musical theatre courses down in London. And then one of the women who was my main, like my kind of tutor on the course at RCS in the evening, she then helped me with my monologues. Um, and then I did a course at the weekend and it was like just singing, dancing and acting. And I remember going, I stayed in Glasgow then at that point and my, my flatmate was like, how was that? And I was like, it was just great. Like I just got to do that all day. And the woman that ran the course was also a lecturer on a musical theatre course. And she was like, you should apply for the masters. And I was like, nah man I'm too old like she was like nah because I was like 30 early 30s at the time so I did and then I got in and that's what I love about you like you know you've just rhymed off all these classes and all these extracurricular like workshops like as much as you sounds like there's been a lot of self-doubt there like from day dot Marianne but you still do it I know the only thing you really need to be to have to be an actor is to decide you want to be an actor but for me that's not how I work I need all these qualifications to back me up because I don't have the self-confidence, I think, that I need to be able to go, well, I must be able to do it because I've got this qualification and this qualification and I've this experience and I've done this and I've done this. And I know that you don't need that and there are amazing actors out there who haven't trained. But for me, for my own, like, sort of peace of mind or self-confidence, I sort of need that. Plus, I really like learning. Like, the best thing about being a teacher is that you keep learning. Um, and that you learn from the people that you teach. You've been a teacher for how long now? Like nearly 20 years. I mean, you can only imagine the things that you've learned in that period of time, like you say, from your colleagues, from situations that you've been put in, like from the young people that you get to work with and and just that about yourself as well, all that time you spent working on yourself. It's amazing like that you've been able to, you've been able to like harness that passion, but you've not just went well, I liked drama and I liked music and I liked dance, so I ended up becoming a teacher so I could pass that on. You've kept that going, which I think is really important for the young people that you are teaching, that that passion's definitely still fueling away. Yeah, I think like you have to come from a position of, of at least being involved in the industry. What I, What's quite difficult about teaching in today's day and age is when I first started teaching, there was loads of money um, to get people in, to get theatre companies in, to get, like like artisan, like all that, and that's dried up. Um, and the, f- the focus has went on STEM, so like science, technology, engineering, maths. And I'm not saying these things aren't important, but when you get someone from a STEM industry coming in to talk to kids, they're not losing any money. Their boss has said, you know, Gavin, why don't you head into that school this afternoon and talk to them about such and such? And he's still being paid a wage Whereas any artist that comes into a school, they've given up their time, which is their money, because they're not doing something else that they could be being paid for and they're not being paid to come into schools. And so at one point, schools were able to pay these people and now they're not. And I actually feel sorry. Like a lot of the kids that I first started teaching have gone on to be actors and teachers. And it's because their experience 
of drama and of arts education is completely different to what kids are getting now. And, and it's the kids that suffer, like these kids that went on and, you know, they had a great experience. They had these theatre comes in, they had directors coming in, they had like all this access to, to going to the theatre, to watching theatre, to having a workshop after it. And the workshop didn't cost them any more money. They'd already bought their ticket and these opportunities don't exist anymore. If there is a workshop, it's 350 quid because that theatre company needs the money because all the funding's been cut. And it's a shame because the kids that I teach now have nowhere near the same experience as those. And it's because they're not getting in touch with like industry professionals. And it's and it's a shame. Um, but in terms of my own personal progress, like I still want to perform. And a lot of time I think, well, I'm not really doing it. I'm doing things adjacent. You know, I'm teaching this and I'm doing that. And, you know, I do do bits and bobs. But at least when I'm doing that, I'm still learning stuff and I'm still keeping my skills out there. And as I said, like, you should always keep learning. Me learning to be a vocal coach just now, those skills I can then bring in when I... So I teach NPA musical theatre as well as drama in schools, but I'm also teaching musical theatre for um, 12 to 17-year-olds at RCS at the weekends. So I'm using all those those skills to be able to do that. And, like, my boss at work came in one day when I was before the pandemic where we could actually sing at each other. Um, and I was, like, working with a kid, and he just said, you know, this is the same as a video I watched or about Juilliard. And I was like, well, calm your pants there, but thanks very much. Um, I think it's important that kids experience that, especially then if they want to go on and train, because that's the way they'll be trained in these establishments, these further education establishments. And if you've got links to that, you're keeping all that like fresh and available. Yeah. Um, I, as opposed to somebody... And I'm not slagging anyone that's had a career as an actor because good on them, but that maybe were like, yeah, I did this 20 years ago, but I've not done anything since. And that's where I think Amdram has a value because whilst it doesn't teach you to be a teacher of things, you know, you, you turn up and someone teaches you a dance and someone teaches you a song and someone gives you lines to learn, like no one teaches you how to teach other people to do these things, but it's still, you know, it's an interest and it's keeping you know, your skills going um, and your understanding the, the passion of it all, really. And I've spoke to people that run theatres and they were saying, you know, some people that work in the theatre, like backstage, who permanently work in theatre, maybe look down on Amdram groups, but they're like, these groups have got more money than a lot of the professional theatres that are coming in. So they're keeping these theatres essentially open. Well, obviously not now, but yeah. they're keeping these theatres open. And there are people and Amdram, who I say are just as talented as professionals, it's just been a lifestyle choice. You know, they've wanted a family, they've wanted to settle down, they've got another job that they enjoy, and they've not wanted to have a life of always being on the road or not knowing where your next paycheck's coming from. These sensible people. Yeah, these careful scientists. So true. I know. <laughs> you know, when I was thinking about interviewing you for this, and I was like, I just, you know how much I, I loved that showcase of yours that you did at RCS, so to let people understand so you had to create a body of work as part of your course your masters we were just totally blown away that night I remember just coming out going that was actually amazing like <laughs> how good was she and it just because it encapsulated your personality like how funny how vibrant you are but like uh, it was wonderful so I'm talking about ginger monologue yeah the reason that I went to RCS was because um, I knew they had part of the, the year teaching was that the master's students produced a cabaret. It just appealed to me. And it's funny because 
some people were like, this is the worst thing like about this course. And I was like, this is the best thing. A lot of musical theatre performers are very comfortable behind a script and a song that someone's given them and a dance that someone's given them um, and feel quite uncomfortable maybe creating their own work or just being themselves, I think, is more of the case. Um, and even listening to, like, Kerry Ellis, Jeremy Jordan, like, I've been to both those cabarets and I've heard, like, them say, you know, when I first thought about doing this, I was terrified. And a lot of their cabarets are like, so when I was four, this is a song my dad used to sing and then they sing it. And the chat in between is limited, whereas... Mm. When we were told, right, this is what you've got to do, you've got to create a cabaret, and we were put into groups, and I was given a, a mentor, it was a girl, Amanda Gohan, who sadly died. So, and she was a, a great um, up-and-coming director, like, she was going places, and it's just so tragic, so sudden. And we had, like, a kind of tutor overall for it, and it was it was Johnny McKnight. I love Johnny McKnight. I think he's talented, I think he's funny, I really look up to him, I really admire him. And he, when we were talking about our ideas initially... And this was before we were given mentors. He was like, what's yours going to be about? And I was like, ah, oh, I was thinking about doing one about being an ugly ginger. And he was like, but you're not ugly. And he said, do you know what you should do on dating? And it was like he saw into the worst possible situation that I would ever find myself in. And he just hit the nail on the head about the, the thing that would make me most vulnerable and uncomfortable. Now, he wasn't my mentor, so... I was good at Amanda, who was like open to my, and I modified it. I was like, I'm just going to call it the ginger monologues. And it was loosely like the vagina monologues, but ginger monologues, it was about being ginger. So loads of people like watched cabarets to like get ideas. I went to the comedy club, but I went to the, the stand and that's where I got my ideas from like my chat. That was the highlight for me. Like I totally loved doing that, just like bantering and then like the more you do it you add in extra jokes each night and stuff like that and those end up being the funniest bits because obviously we were at the time going people need to see this like you need to do this <laughs> but how many years between that show and then taking it to the fringe probably about five i would say i mean i enjoyed the co- i enjoyed the every day of the course like i enjoyed getting in and singing and dancing and acting and learning and it is like i just love learning and then I went back to teaching because I'd been given a year off. And so for about three years, I kind of lived in this bubble of this is okay and I can do Amdram and I can keep singing and, you know, I'll teach dance and I'll do dance classes. And and then I started to get frustrated with that world again and, and think there's, there's something else I need to do. And I think teaching will always be in me in a certain way, but I, I love teaching at RCS and I love the freedom of that. But I think the, the, the performing bug just got too much and I thought, right, I'm going to need an agent and there's no way of doing that if I've not got anything they can come and see. So oh. I'll just take my Ginger Monolith to finish. So I rewrote a lot of it um, and added new songs because instead of it, I used to get into trouble at because it was too long. Um, but then I had to like basically double it in time. So I like added new stuff, found out new facts about being Ginge. I mean, there's lots of people out there probably have got dreams and aspirations to do that especially in the last like two years where everybody's like I should have took that show to the fringe when I could but like that's like no mean feat I would imagine to set all that up you know yeah it was like a year in the making so the year before I'd inquired about seeing like venues and I actually was like yeah I'll put it on this year and I'll start looking in April and I inquired with space 
venues and the guy was like, you're not going to get anything like this year. And he, so he gave me a free pass to all space venues and was like, just come along. So that year, the year before I did the Fringe, I spent most of my time at the Fringe just watching loads of shows for free and looking at the venue sizes and spaces. So yeah, that, that was quite good and I kind of got a feel for it. But yeah, booking the venue, you start to pay up the venue. I went to lectures. The Fringe do these free lectures, basically talking about budgeting and publicity and all that stuff and talk you through like dates for when you need to get all this stuff in. But it was really, it was a lot of work. Um, and I'm lucky I had had like a few really good friends that helped me out with the planning of it. So my friend Sarah, she works for the BBC and she was great in terms of press release stuff. She could talk me through how to do that. Her brother owned um, a, a printing shop in Newcastle. So she did my flyers. I got someone to take a photograph. She helped me. She was good with like design things on computers. Like I'm rubbish with computers. Um, her wife like did my front of house. A couple of my friends were backing singers. One of my really good friends from my time at RCS, she was my musical director. And it was important for me to do it like with friends. Yeah. Like I didn't, you know, I could have hired like backing singers or whatever. It's a labour of love in it. Like it's a labour of it's your like it's your baby, it's your show, you've written this. Mm-hmm. And I guess like it's just that comfort zone of having people around you that are rooting for you as well, like friends who care about this thing that you've you're going to put out in the world for you personally it's like that kind of um just that extra kind of comfort blanket almost of knowing everybody involved yeah and then that means my friends can be like i just did a show at the fringe do you know and they can add that to their cvs and things like that but yeah was like a total lesson in how Mm. to produce a show at the fringe you know that's knowledge that i've now got and i've said i've got other friends who are like i might do a show at fringe i was like if you need any help planning it because I did quite enjoy like the plan you know you you had to pay up the venue but you also had to pay like media stuff press release like insurance all that kind of things things you don't really think about in space we're, we're really good at talking you through all that and giving you dates and then the fringe fringe society they're really good because it's really well organized and I love I love a well-organised thing, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm secretly jealous of the Vatican police. Man, those people are slick, you know. It's like my dad's side of the family. Like, you know, if it doesn't move, it gets laminated. It's really well done. You know, you can't really go wrong unless you're, like, super lazy and you think things will just happen by themselves. And, and it was good. It was petrifying, more so than when I did at RCS. And I think... When I was at RCS, you were sort of in the way of just performing all the time and you, you were just used to putting on shows constantly and, you, and I had nothing else. I wasn't teaching at the time. So that was my sole focus. So I was like on it. And then you step back for a few years and I'm still a teacher. And so I'm writing this show and I'm trying to organise and produce the show while I'm still working a full-time job. And your focus is on other places. And just before the show, but... Three weeks before the show, I completely lost my voice. Like, gone. Nothing. And that's never happened to me. And when I look back, and it was probably a stress thing, but it was a huge worry because you're like, if I don't get this back, I can't I can't sing. And even the, the, the show was on for a week in the first three nights. My voice wasn't what it was and I had big plans to stay up in Edinburgh and make a great time of it and stay with my yeah. friends and take in loads of shows during the day and do my show at night. And I literally just had to get home, not talk, sleep come back in the next day just so that I had a voice 
you know, we talk about things being psychosomatic or psychological. I think there was that element, but it doesn't stop the physical, like, still no. being there. Like, yeah, I could go, this is probably all in my head and the stress. I still don't have a voice. Yeah. So, and I think once it started and I started singing, like, dress rehearsal, I sang through the show and then my voice was gone. And then it came back enough the next day. And it, it's rubbish because then you think the people that saw the first few shows didn't hear me sing the way I can sing. And it was a bit gutting. But by the end of the week, it was fine. And I think also I was petrified because I was like, and this never crossed my mind when I was RCS, if I lose the thread of this, because it was just me that spoke and I just had backing singers. But if I lose the order of this or I lose my chat associated, what would I do? And I mean, good things came from it. Like I was asked to do, there's a Redhead Festival down in London. Like I got a phone call about that shortly after it and then that didn't happen because then... It was meant to be May 2020 and then COVID hit. And then I got an agent. So, you know, good stuff came from it. Um, so it was worth doing. And people were like, would you do it again? And I'm like, I, I don't know. I think if I wasn't doing anything else, like I wasn't teaching and I didn't have all these other distractions, then yes. And 100% I would do something where I am not the sole person and everything doesn't rest on my shoulders you could just get loads of gingers that you know, surely. Surely you know loads of other talented gingers. I did start writing something, like, well, along those yeah. lines at the time because I know a lot of talented gingers. I'm Do you know what's even friends. funnier? One of my friends came to see the last show and she said she was at the bar after it and these two women were in front of her and one of them said, I mean, I don't really think she's ginger. She's got brown eyes. <laughs> <laughs> Questioning my gingerness. And I was like, well, they're hazel, but uh-huh. And, I, and then you want to go, well, actually, the rarest combination is blue eyes and red hair. There's another ginger fact. I did a lot of research. Well, I think we've gathered in this <laughs> podcast so far that you uh, no, no stone is unturned. Like, you no. do your research. Do you know what it is? It's being a perfectionist. Like, I totally have perfectionism and not in a, well, what's your, you know, what's your faults? Well, I'm a perfectionist. Like, <laughs> job interview banter. Like, it's not a good thing being a perfectionist. And that's... It holds you back. Like, I'm constantly waiting for the right time to do something or I do things adjacent to what I really want to be doing because I'm scared to do it wrong. And so there is actually, like, a major downside to being a perfectionist. I've self-diagnosed myself, obviously. There's been no professional diagnosis here, guys. And you wouldn't know it to, like, look at me or my flat. Like, it doesn't manifest <laughs> itself in, like, OCD-type cleaning. I wish it did, but it doesn't. But you're saying that, like, you know, there's, like, an element of procrastination there or whatever or like holding yourself back but that is only to an extent because think of all the look at all the things you've done yeah I'm not I'm not so much a procrastinator as I wait for optimal conditions I've got a few scripts on the go and I can't sit down and like work on them in my head I need to be like well I need to have about four hours and in reality it doesn't take four hours no one can sit and write for four hours like but I have to go well I'm doing something in an hour so if I start it now I won't or it's like I don't have anything in my head and 10 times out of 10 when I just sit down something comes to me but it's the thought of doing it and so in life I sort of have had to learn to go you've got an hour that's all you can expect of yourself and it's the same like even like exercise I'm always like I'm not up for doing a full session and I have to go do 10 minutes and then nine times out of 10 after 10 minutes I want to do more because it's better to do 10 minutes than nothing as the careful scientist would tell you I feel like Squadcast is very like intuitive like it's just like sussed you out I know because like I'm the opposite of a careful scientist Lisa but really this has shown me 
this is like a therapy session. I've learned so much about myself. <laughs> I know. And we touched on, I think it was even pre-recording, that we all know that live events and performing has been very difficult in the last year yeah. to do that. But I know you have still embraced the opportunity where possible to perform and to like share your love of the arts with other people. So tell us about uh-huh. what you've been up to. Well, I'm still teaching online, so I still teach musical theatre for RCS online. Every Friday, or every second Friday, me and my friends, who are all like out-of-work actors, get together, and my friend John, he's got a theatre company, GM Theatricals, and he's sort of organised it, and it's really kept us going during lockdown. So we don't have an audience, but yeah, I've sung parts I would never normally sing. And it's interesting to see how other people would cast you, particularly when there's like maybe a limited like age range or type of person um so we've been doing that and then also i've been singing for dementia carers so a couple of tuesday nights um i've done wee concerts for them um with one of my friends um so the first night was musical theater and then the second one was country where i used a fake mic because i couldn't we had this conversation pre-recorded which i just loved (laughs) so you decided that you could not could not sing without a microphone when singing country music no because like when you do musical theatre, you act through song. Yeah. So it's on the face, it's on the body language, right? When you're doing, when you're doing like country music, it's it's essentially pop singing, and they all have mics. And so I thought I'm going to be singing like Jolene here. So I just <laughs> took my mic, which is for voiceover work, and and unplugged it and just held it. So we've been doing that, but they insist on paying us. Like they've obviously got a budget, so I just used the money. And then um, a guy we both know who's a minister had put a shout out for children's clothes. There was kids in Airdrie going to school with no tights and socks. So just any money that I make from singing for dementia carers, I then bought like loads of socks and tights. Because I don't have kids, so they were saying, anyone's got anything spare? And I thought, well, I don't have kids. And nobody wants second-hand socks and tights. So because it was lockdown, the only place I could get stuff was like supermarkets. Mm-hmm. So I went in the Morrison's and just bought... Like loads of time. and bought like jackets and things as well. You're a good egg. Who's also talented? I've not been furloughed or anything, and a lot of people are in much, you know, like I got an agent and then everything shut down. Yeah. And in some ways, I'm lucky that I hadn't quit my job and, and done something. Like I do, you know, I thank my lucky stars that I'm not in the same situation as a lot of people, so I can use that while I've got it. But on the upside of everything slowing down, I was like, this is God's plan. Look, the fish have come back into the fountains in Italy. Look at the canals in Venice. They're now blue as like Mother Nature. And I was walking about marvelling. Honestly, I must have looked like an absolute weirdo. Like, I don't, like, I am, I know it sounds weird, but I think at heart I'm an introvert. And I think I have to be careful at being locked away for so long. Not like, you know what, you know, I'm still, you know, we're back working in schools and things like that, but I get easily overwhelmed if I'm surrounded by people all the time. And I, and that's why it's good, like, living on my own and I just, like, go back and I can, like, disconnect from that and then power up my energy to then face that all the next day. But in the same token, I get a lot of energy from people as well. So while I might sometimes not look forward to my Sunday Zoom chat, like, as soon as I'm on it, or I might not look forward to singing online on the Friday with other people just singing through the musical. Like, I, I do it, and, and after that, I'm, bu- I'm literally buzzing. I can't sleep. Like, literally buzzing. 
because I've, I've fed off these people. Um, and I think I have to... I have to sometimes force myself to do things like that because it is good for me and I do love these people. They are my friends. It's one thing like labelling yourself as an introvert and an extrovert. I think a lot of the time some of us are at a fine balance between that and sometimes we do need to take yourself away and we will overthink things that at other times will be absolutely natural and you won't need to, even to give it a second thought. The good thing is that you've recognised that you're like so self-aware, you've <laughs> recognised that in yourself and that you're still pushing yourself out your comfort zone. You're doing... You're, you know, you're still performing, you're going online, you're teaching, you're doing, because, I mean, putting yourself out of your comfort zone, that's all you do when you're learning, when you're going to classes and you're making yourself vulnerable. What you've said all along is not where you like to be. Just because you're a performer doesn't mean that you're always going to be confident about your own abilities or get up on a stage or go on a Zoom call. Yeah, because I remember um, I nearly stopped singing. Like, at that point, I was singing opera and I was singing in church. And we went to Spain for my cousin's ordination and I was to sing. And my, my uncle was playing the guitar and I'd said to him at the time, like, I don't know if I should be a singer. Like, I love it. This is the thing. I love it. But I get so nervous. So maybe that's a sign that I shouldn't, I shouldn't be doing it. And he just said, the more you do it, the easier it gets. And that's, that's 100% true. You know, and I think in whatever you do, there's always things that you don't enjoy. Like, as a teacher, love working with kids. Do I enjoy marking or writing reports? Not particularly. Like, there's always the yin and yang. Or the, and every, I think that's in everything. But I don't know whether we're just conditioned in this world that unless your life's like a Hallmark movie, you're doing something wrong. That's why I was like, Lisa, I should have been in this podcast because everyone in this podcast, and I've listened to a lot of this podcast, are really positive and they've followed their dreams and they've taken risks. And I was like, I haven't. I've always, like played it safe in a way like I've stuck the teaching's always been there like and I'm not a positive person (laughs) (laughs) taking risks is is great if that's what you want to do and and, you know that's that's going to propel you forward or or take you somewhere new and that 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 can be a positive thing of course but I don't think being careful and planning and you know taking care of what you love is something that's negative I, I, I don't think that is You've curated this life of stuff that you like and and you've gone through moments where you're like, I'm concentrating on that, I'm doing the teaching and that's what my head's in there. But you like I say in this podcast a lot, you're a multifaceted person, you have different interests in it and throughout your life as you grow and, and things change, you'll then go, do you know what, I really want to perform again, so that's what I'm going to do. And there's nothing yeah. wrong with that. Yeah, I, I suppose. And, and I've always worried about what other people think and I think as you get older, you have to be like that thing of what someone else thinks of you is none of your business. People will always have opinions and you can't change that. I think I used to spend a lot of my younger life trying to please everybody and trying to make people like me. And then I was like, nah, just become a hermit. But no, like, yeah, it's just, you're right. Like, I don't know. I just always think, oh, these people have, you know, just like thrown caution to the wind and it's worked out for them. Um, whereas I maybe don't have that confidence in myself. But I'm, I'm, I'm sort of trying. I like to lay things out like a careful scientist, Lisa. <laughs> like, I always think shit happens. It's the good stuff that you have to make happen a lot of the time. Someone listening to this could be like, do you know what? She's right. Like, I can do my day job in inverted commas and I could do the Amdram thing or I could maybe perform on the side or whatever. That you haven't invented an eighth day of the week that you have made this happen because these are all the things that you love to do. And it's not like, well, I can have one or the other. Like you're mm. saying, yeah, it's important to to not 
overload yourself with stuff and that that can be detrimental as well but but you've done all these things alongside teaching and done yeah. it successfully it can be done if you want to you just need to make the good stuff happen like you say and, and at times when I've like maybe been promoted at work and like I've been working really hard and working all the hours and so the other stuff falls by the wayside for my mental health that's not great either I become stale or I become bored or I become like somebody that just lies on the couch and does nothing. And so while it can be tiring, I think it's also necessary. It's like what I'm saying, like I could easily become a hermit and sometimes being around other people is overwhelming for me, but I, I need it. Like, you know, if there's like a switch that comes on when I'm either performing or I'm in the company of other people, and it, I call it like my mini Hugh Jackman or like my mini Eddie Izzard that comes out. Um, and I worry at the day that it doesn't switch on that Hugh or Jackman like goes away or falls asleep and I have to wake him up. Come on, Hugh. Come on, Hugh. Switch it on for the people. Um, I think everyone is just, their default is is just different. Yeah, I, ju- I just really admire it, all the effort and energy you've put into your craft. I particularly admire you when you're doing your choreography because you're much nicer than me. Like your patience is legendary you've got like mini mother Teresa kicking about you you know you're you're good at that (laughs) and I think what you've taught me as well is that there's real room for everybody you're so generous with what you do you know you've shown me and by listening to your podcast actually I'm like god these people are so interesting so nice and and you are like one of the few people I know We've like met loads of folks during lockdown. Well, now that you've been on the podcast, you're now part of the clan, so you'll have made new pals whether you like it or not. But um, you, I mean, you can't be in you can't be enrolled fully in the clan until you've done the hingamajigs, as you know. I feel I might open a can of worms with this one. Oh, so you need to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> What's your biggest pet peeve? I think rudeness is a pet peeve. You know, people that just skip you in a queue because for some reason they've got a right that you don't have. Not a fan of that. And I will always call it out. Well, you know. I? Like, I never used to, but I was in the Aldi in Newton Mearns, so it's a posh Aldi. And uh, when it first opened, you know, buying the goods. And then this man with various bottles of wine, because I had a fair bit, he just, you know how some people go like that, oh, can I skip in front of you because I've only got a couple of things. Mm. I mean, I don't think that's right. I think it's good if somebody spots you with a wee couple of things and lets you in front. That's lovely. So this man, older man, with bottles of wine, just like sauntered past. And I just went, excuse me, there's a queue. And I'm not someone who is up for confrontation ever. But in the case of people skipping a queue, um, it's not fair. So I speak out Mm. against queue jumpers. Justice for people who wait patiently. I, I think generally just a pet peeve is rudeness. There's no need. Just be yeah. nice. I, I think I already know the answer to this, but I'll ask it anyway. What would be your mastermind specialist subject? <gasps> probably uh, probably musicals. But do you know what? I know you think I know a lot about musicals, but I know people who know far more than me. Like, far more. I'm doing a Sondheim workshop at the weekend because one of my friends is like knows everything about Stephen Sondheim and I'm going to learn more about Stephen Sondheim. Also, maybe Dolly Parton. Oh, yeah. Special subject, Dolly Parton. Love Dolly Parton. So, yeah, something like that. Musicals, Dolly Parton. The Larynx. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't have... You know how some people are like, oh, I know everything about Coca-Cola cans or something? Like, <laughs> yeah. I don't have, like, a niche 
knowledge of like I think Yankee musicals fans. and the larynx is, is like is quite yeah. huge. and Dolly and Dolly karaoke song of choice Ooh, no but also I used to run a karaoke Lisa yes you did this is also I did while I worked at McDonald's I was discovered when I had ME and I was sitting on a chair and I couldn't do anything at McDonald's I used to sing a bit of Billy Joel and I was discovered by Sally the karaoke host driving through the and who said do you fancy being a karaoke host and it was like a star is born I swear to god <laughs> that was like what happened and then I ran the karaoke in the Claremont Hotel every Friday night when I first started teaching. And then pupils would come in and I thought, I need to stop doing this. Can I tell you one that I like to sing? That's my song I sing. And then tell Hi. you one that I love hearing other people perform. Absolutely. I like it when people perform Ghostbusters. Uh, Faith is also a good one. I'd always do a bit of country. I'd always do a bit of Leanne Rhymes. Um, I think my go-to is probably Adele like rolling in the deep or even like though the Bob Dylan cover that she did make you feel my love although I now do want to see you do Ghostbusters <laughs> honestly I used to love it when people did Ghostbusters or I or it was I was it Elvis Presley the wonder of you but everyone would all like sing along in the pub it was great here's to the times where we can do karaoke again I know I know and the last question that you know I ask everyone is what is your favourite Scottish word or phrase? So Lisa I've thought long and hard about this situation. Oh no. <laughs> so I had one and right. then I watched Line of Duty and I realised that it wasn't a Scottish word or phrase, it was Northern Irish. So Hodgerwished is not well, it's not only Scottish, it's Northern Irish. Cause Ted so it was in the what? first episode, first episode of the new series. He was like, Hodger Wished. And then I Googled it because I was like, what's going on? Because I say to my Alexa, oh, she's going to speak now. But I say, oh, she's going to speak because I've said it. Because I basically only use she who shall not be named for timing my cooking. So when the alarm goes off, I always go, wished. And she who shall not be named, wishes she responds. Is she? I? So she's Scottish, but when I was at RCS, I used to, I don't know if you know I went to RCS, um, so, <laughs> but I used to teach the American Scottish swear words and that amused me endlessly. Um, but having thought about it, I like the word glake it. It is a good one. It has come up. There's, I don't think there's another word to describe exactly what that means. There's no other word to describe it. So yeah, I think my favourite Scottish word, and I like things with like hard, like glottal, like glake it. That's my favourite. So for somebody who said they weren't going to have a lot to say and nothing, nothing that they were going to say was interesting. I think I think we've gathered that that was untrue. It may not be interesting, but I certainly haven't shut up. So sorry. <laughs> it, it's very much interesting. I've had a lovely time, and I've learned things about my pal that I didn't know, which is always <laughs> a joy. And I do massively appreciate you putting you, yourself out your comfort zone to come on the Brown the Brave. And, like, just thanks. Thanks, pal. Thank you, pal. No, I've enjoyed it. Even just to get a wee catch-up. I'm not allowed out of Glasgow and you're not allowed out of North I know. I know. We're, like, five and goes west. Somewhere out there and we sing to the moon and all that. <laughs> sorry, I'm just havering. Do you know I need chocolate? It's been about four hours. So, Sorry. <laughs> hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Brawn the brave a podcast about people and their passions join us next time for more insight and inspiration from my wonderful guests bye for now